This week's episode of Probably Science is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, who are offering our listeners a free trial plus $30 off when you sign up for an annual plan if you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Probably Science. Hey everyone, welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. I'm Andy Wood. Uh, I want to get straight into this guest because... It's a fun guest. We're talking about volcanoes. We've not done this before. So our guest today is Jess Phoenix, also the author of Misadventure, a new memoir about her life as a volcanologist and explorer. Uh, hey, Jess, how's it going? Oh, it's great. Thank you both for having me. Thank- thanks for joining us. Of course. You are our first volcanologist. Uh, <laughs> surprisingly, we've not had many of those. I don't think how many. I don't know how many of those there are. I mean, it depends on how you quantify it and qualify it, but there's more or less, you know, there's a few hundred people around the world who know, you know, do volcanoes as a specialty actively, and mm-hmm. there's a smaller number who do physical volcanology, which is basically um, what it sounds like when you go out and you're actually trying to figure out the physical characteristics of volcanoes and monitor the hazards they create. So there's there's a very small group of folks, and most of us know each other or know of each other, and there are some people who are like, I strictly do earthquakes on volcanoes, or or I strictly do the chemistry of the magma in the magma chamber. So it gets very, very specialized. But I would say there aren't that many of us. That's a good way of putting it. Right. That sounds about right. Such a... Such an amazingly small number, given how outsized volcanoes were in my childhood mind. And how much of a, it's kind of like kind of like quicksand. It's a thing that I thought I'd have to deal with a lot as an adult. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's weird because if we actually assessed volcanoes as the threat that they are, and we responded proportionally, we would have a lot more funding for volcano monitoring and research. Let me just say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like it's a low low probability of a very high cost situation at any given moment around the planet when it comes to volcanoes. Yeah, I mean, right now there's about 45 volcanoes erupting as we speak. So just because we don't hear about all of the eruptions doesn't mean that they're not happening. And, you know, everybody's right. going nuts for the Iceland volcano. That's because it's accessible and it's it's more accessible to English-speaking media than Mount Etna in Italy. And even though that one is also erupting quite spectacularly right now. So it's it's a very weird thing. It's sort of where is the volcano located? Will that get the attention of the world? But there's a lot more going on than what we think about day to day. Yeah, and I imagine with technology of drones and things that the visual aspect of seeing like that that shot flying over the Iceland volcano is pretty you know impressive and awe inspiring. So it makes sense that that's on the public's mind. Yeah, it is breathtaking, and it, I mean it's even more so in person. And if you've had the privilege to be able to fly over an active eruption in a helicopter, you will never ever forget it. Uh, it's it's unreal how amazing it is in person. And so the drone shot is fantastic. Not only because it's a good excuse to kill a drone, like, yeah, we took it to the limit. Um, It's also, it makes it more accessible for people who would never have the chance to see anything like that if it wasn't for the drone. So I appreciate the fact that we have all this technology now. So even though I love to describe, you know, exploring these places in great detail, uh, like AKA via the book, um, this allows folks who are really strongly visual to feel like they've been to a place that they probably won't get to go see in person. Right. And it really brings Dianetics to life. Yes, exactly. (laughs) 
that uh, that other nonfiction book. About <laughs> There's a few. <laughs> well, can we, can we talk about before we get into the book and your your experiences, the different types of volcano? Because I hadn't even realized how vary there like right at the beginning of the book one of the first volcanoes you see is in hawaii and that's not like most of hawaii is volcano but it's not the sort of traditional kids drawing of a volcano style cone shape yes and that's that's one of those common misconceptions people think that all volcanoes look like that inverted v and that's so far from the truth volcanoes are every single one is unique and distinct and has its own personality and Volcanoes as a whole come in many varieties. And so in Hawaii, you've got shield volcanoes being the most common. Uh, shield volcanoes are, it, the name makes sense if you think about a warrior shield laying on its side. It's a gradual slope. Or like, just think of Captain America's shield. That's probably really accessible for a lot of folks. Captain America lay a shield on the ground or a flat surface. And then imagine what it would look like. Just a little bit convex. Um, not not too dramatic of a slope anywhere. And so that is what, um, that's one of those things that we try to explain to people is that just because it doesn't look like what you think, um, it's still a volcano. Same with like Yellowstone, which of course is a super volcano. Well, in the, in the terminology that has now been popularized, it's a super volcano, but basically we say that it can erupt at a super volcano level of eruption. So So what what is that? What does it mean to do to be categorized at that level? So volcanologists use a scale uh, that's known as the Volcanic Explosivity Index, or the VEI. And it's sort of a little bit like the Richter scale in earthquake land, and in that it's a logarithmic growth. So if you have a... If you have a um, Uh, an eruption, you measure how much material is erupted. And so a Hawaiian style eruption is typically like a zero or a one on the VEI. If you, you go up by a factor of 10 every time, basically Mount St. Helens was a five on the VEI. And then the big eruption. 10,000s worth of a a Hawaiian. (laughs) Yes, yes. So it's just enormously bigger. And then you go up even further to like a Yellowstone of the three major ones that it's had um, in the rock record are VEI-8. So that is staggeringly huge. I mean, we're talking about something that produces so much material and, and it doesn't have to be lava. They can be ash as well. And that material, and also, of course, rock fragments, lava bombs, um, there's, there's an assortment of things volcanoes can throw at us. But there's so much material from the Yellowstone eruptions that we can find layers of what we call tuff, which is when volcanic material like ash welds together because it's hot when it's fallen to the ground and it just sort of, it, it essentially cooks together. Uh, we have... Mm-hmm. Things like that on the order of um, almost all the way to the nation's capital. So you you find evidence of these Yellowstone eruptions in Southern California, in um, all across the Midwest, Colorado. I mean, this is how we know how big these eruptions were. And Yellowstone, when you're there, it doesn't feel like a volcano because it is so, so massive. It feels like you're just driving around in a normal landscape if you don't know what you're looking at. I mean, aside from the geysers, mm-hmm. of course. <laughs> right. Was it the case that whenever that last blew, it was also an extinction event? Was it that cataclysmic? I, I don't know what the consensus on that well, is I, now. Well, I'm 
pretty sure. Now, I'm not a biologist. I do work with a lot of biologists. Uh, I would say that it, you're definitely going to have seen some extinctions. They were probably localized. So we're talking about you know things in the immediate area of impact. And of course, you would have global temperatures being altered because volcanoes yeah. actually, when they when you get a big enough eruption, the um, acid aerosols and the particulates in the atmosphere, all that little junk and debris floating around, does a pretty good job of insulating the Earth. It acts like a big thermal blanket, and that can lower the temperature globally for a year or so. So we probably saw some effects on crops if if there were anyone was trying to grow a crop, although at that point, 640,000 right. years ago, meh, not so much. Um, yeah. But we would we would have seen effects on anything that was growing uh, that would have been sunlight dependent. And then, of course, that leads to food scarcity for some species. And then, of course, if they die, then other species die. So it's very likely that it's right. it wasn't cataclysmic like the, you know, the what killed the dinosaurs level. But it's definitely something that when you have an eruption that big anywhere in the world, the rest of the world is going to feel effects uh, for a little while, for, you know, several months yeah. at the very least. So let's... T- talk about the other things that volcanoes can split up because on one of your first expeditions one of the things that stood out to me was your supervisor telling you if you hear a loud enough bang get ready to run <laughs> that is true uh, i was working on the rim of kilauea volcano and i was about 150 feet um basically over this lava lake that Kilauea had at that point. Uh, the same lava lake was present from 2008 until 2018, and it went away, and now there's a lava lake again. It started in December of 2020. So Kilauea is very active, and we were over this lava lake. It had just opened um, very recently uh, In that, at that time. It was a recent development, and we were supposed to be putting a camera up, a, an infrared camera, to basically allow us to see the activity in the lava lake all day long, all night long, um, and to see what the temperatures were and, and where the spatter was being thrown around, basically just to monitor the behavior of the lava lake. And we were going to set up solar panels and then get the camera installed on a tripod and and tacked down using lava bombs that were cool and just laying around the area. And those are just, you know, big blobs of lava the volcano has thrown out. So we were going to, you know, use those to brace the legs of the tripod that we had for the camera. And um, <laughs> we, yeah, it's like, use what you've got, you know? We, we do that a lot. Sure. Right? So and is so is we, there like we an optimal time that. then in the cooling process when it's like, okay, when it's too hot, it's going to melt everything. But when it's too cold, it's just going to be a lump of rock. So you've got to get it right at the level of stickiness where it's going to really give your camera some good purchase. Uh, yeah, no, we, we err on the side of just cold is good. And, gotcha. and so, the, the yeah, the nice thing is that volcanoes do produce a very handy amount of, uh, of good-sized chunks of stuff. And when I say stuff, it's all lava. And, oh, that's another misconception. A lot of people think that all lava is hot. It is not. It's still lava even after it's cooled and solidified. It's just that when it's molten, it, it flows. <laughs> it oozes. Okay. And it, it's, it's still a solid. It just behaves like a liquid. So it falls into the category of material that physicists uh, like to deem as a plastic solid, meaning it oozes. So um, those, if you can find a lava even- bomb, then congratulations. You have found something a volcano has lobbed out at the general world. <laughs> okay. 
what you're saying it still has it still has some viscosity or flu- plasticity even at room temperature. No, that's when it's solidified. Oh. And if it's yeah, oh, okay. when it's higher were... than that, it's um, when it's a hotter temperature, it can still move around. But it does need to be heated up pretty pretty high. And so we're talking like on the order of 2000 degrees Fahrenheit, somewhere between 18 1800 right, okay. to 2000 degrees. That's when it actually flows. And if it substantially cools beyond that, like it could still flow at like 1400 um, Fahrenheit, but it's going to start having problems as it gets cooler. And so these this area where we were working, there were plenty of lava bombs. They can be the size of a, you know, a Volkswagen bus uh, on the big end and on the small end, it just little tiny, um, almost sand grain sized particles. So, you know, basically what the volcano produces is a wide range of stuff. And when you're sitting there on the edge of it, on the rim, and you are trying to install a camera, you have a couple hazards. You've got a hazard from the the volcanic plume, the the material in Kilauea's case, and uh, in this case it was gas and water vapor that were being erupted. So you have acid gases present, uh, which are hydrogen fluoride, hydrogen sulfide, sulfur dioxide. You know, you also have carbon dioxide. It's it's a real smorgasbord of nasty, and you uh-huh. do not want to breathe it in. So we had our respirators uh, hanging around our necks. You don't want to work in one of those for a long time if you can avoid it because they're very uncomfortable. Um, but they're ready to go. And we had hard hats on. We have uh, high visibility gear, like a, a safety vest or a bright orange shirt, depending on the day. So basically, you have to wear all of this protective gear because at any moment, yes, it's a lava lake, but it's not calm like a lake of water. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't get affected by wind like a lake of water does. Uh, it's basically gases coming out of, of the uh, magma chamber beneath and the magma actually pushing its way up. So you've got essentially this plastic solid that is 2000 degrees more or less. And at any point you could get a big, big um, infusion of gas essentially in the system. And when that gas uh, gets to the surface, it could explode pretty violently. And so when we're up there, you know, the hard hat is more of a formality than anything because if a big enough lava bomb comes hurtling out, it's not going to help. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a bit uh, <laughs> dicey. And I we were on the rim, and the rim also has um, the tendency to collapse because it's not supported by anything. It's it's um, it's falling in on itself essentially. So we were sitting there at this rim, looking at this big crack that had already opened up not that far from where we were and we're like well i guess this area could collapse soon but we're going to put the <laughs> camera here in the meantime and as we were assessing everything and all the various hazards um if the gas shifted you know we'd have to put our respirators on if the if the area collapsed there was nothing we could do that's it you're dead um and you know if a lava bomb comes hurtling out you hope that it doesn't hit you, essentially. So our, um, our, you know, the the supervisor scientist who I was with, he had been doing this for a long time, and and you know, just he'd been around volcanoes for a long time, and so he just told me, you know, there's a very real possibility you, we could die, right? And I I said, yeah, because I mean, you're literally looking at you know the fiery guts of planet Earth being spilled out beneath your feet, and yeah. and and he's like, yeah, it definitely looks like, like the thing in a movie yeah. before you die. 
Yes, it does. Or like where they throw the Terminator in or, you know, any right. any example is going to not even do it justice as to when you're compared to when you're right over it. So I'm like, yes, I get this. And and he, he just goes, OK, hand me the pliers. And I'm like, yep, no problem. Here we go. Time to do work. <laughs> and that was kind of my introduction to working around a volcano that was actively erupting. And it was amazing because I think I got it in my head that. There are so many ways to die. I mean, you can die on the toilet. You can die by, like, tripping down your stairs at your house. Um, you, you can die of from old age. And I'm like, well, I think that if you die because you were working on a volcano and an accident happened, that is one of the most hardcore badass ways you could <laughs> possibly die. Not saying I, I want anybody yeah, to die. Yeah. A lot of volcanologists and people have died from volcano activity in the past. It's a serious thing. But on the other hand, there's nothing I love more on Earth than volcanoes. So it's like, if I have to go, that would actually not be the worst way I could think of for me personally. That's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. what's it like to be to be standing on like land? Like the entire land is changing all the time. But you, one of the things that struck me in the book was when you said that the volcano that you were standing on, the land you were standing on was younger than you. <laughs> which which is the complete opposite of what we normally experience where we're standing on earth that is millions of years older than us. Yes, it is it's kind of a wake up call to the knowledge that earth is not a cold dead planet. This is a dynamic constantly changing thing and we are just here for the ride. And and just because we happen to be a species that has evolved in a way that lets us influence and shape some of the world around us, we are utterly inept when it comes to trying to stop a volcano or to change what it's going to do. I mean, there have been a few isolated incidences in the past. I mean, the citizens in uh, on Vestmanire in Iceland were able to put seawater, pump it onto lava flows that threatened to shut their harbor at one point. Um, but that is probably one of the most successful, if not the most successful intervention. So we weren't able to stop it erupting. They were just able to make it not go where it was originally going to go. And that was that's the most success we have in trying to wrangle a a raw force of nature, which is what volcanoes are. It, it defies our human interventions in pretty much in totality. We just have to sit along for the ride and, and try to learn as much as we can about our place in the world and how we can relate to volcanoes. Yeah, is, is most of the goal in the study just the pursuit of knowledge for its own sake about volcanoes, or is it mostly about also being able to predict and therefore save lives when eruptions occur? Well, it's it's a bit of both, and we get more funding if it somehow relates to saving lives, uh, which most of it does, because volcanology is a relatively young science. We only really started the, the current modern era of volcanology um, with the eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980. That means that we have learned a lot in a very short amount of time, but it also means that there is so much out there that we don't know. And like I said, every volcano is unique and an individual. And so even from eruption to eruption, they don't always display the same behavior. So it's it's something that is, it's an ever-changing field of study. And the more we learn, I, I think I speak for a lot of volcanologists when I say the more we learn, the more we want to learn. Because <laughs> it's, right. 
I have yet to have a boring day of doing anything related to a volcano. Even when I'm in the lab processing samples, it's still thrilling because you don't entirely know. You might have an idea of what you're going to find, but you're never 100% certain. And you never know what piece of data could unlock a new level of understanding that would, in fact, save lives. Uh, This might be a dumb question, but what does a volcano smell like? (laughs) Well, most of them have a sulfur smell. So um, if you know that rotten egg smell that you get from natural gas lines, that that is fairly close, but it's not 100% because a lot of times volcanoes will also be... If they're going in a, if they're if there's like say a lava flow in a forested area, uh, it'll burn some of the vegetation. Uh, it can burn, you know, of course, burn and, and swallow up houses and cars. Um, so the smells are kind of varied, but that sulfuric smell is the most common, most easily identifiable thing. Uh, but if you're in a volcano in a semi-tropical setting, like in Hawaii, it's of course going to smell tropical with an undercurrent of sulfur. And right. if you're, yeah, if you're somewhere much colder, like Iceland, you're going to get that crisp, cool ocean breeze air. Um, and then, you know, volcanic sulfur. <laughs> so right. it's it's funny. It does it depend on the place, but you do get a variety of, of scents. The most surprising thing to me, though, really was the sound when I started working on volcanoes because it it sounds like a guy, if you're up near a lava lake anyway, it sounds like a guy down there banging metal on metal. So you can totally see why the Greeks and Romans were like, oh, Vulcan and Hephaestus. Like, yes, this is, there's a person down there making armor for the gods. Like, sure, that's logical. Uh, but that's, I mean, it does right. make perfect sense. I'm not, I'm not making fun of them. That's actually what it sounds like. And, <laughs> and also it can sound like um, when the gas rushes out, it can sound like jet engines. It, and it's that loud. It's like you were standing near an active 747 like you know turned on ready to go so you get some pretty amazing sounds and even if you're just up far away from a lava lake but you're up near like a lava flow uh you can hear it depending on the type of flow the big ropey oozy pahoehoe flows like what we see in iceland these days those are they can make a very delicate tinkling sound because volcanic products are often very glassy so lava has a very glassy component to it and you can hear that it's like a a delicate sound of of rock crunching over rock in a glassy way and then if you have an uh ah lava flow which are the big rough jagged looking chunks that sort of fall over themselves it's it's when the lava gets stickier and it doesn't flow as easily it it's an uh ah flow and those flows they kind of sound like crumbling rock like like a bit a bit deeper a bit more resonant um but not you know still not anything super deep just more so than the glassy tinkling of the pahoehoe flow and then when you get a stratovolcano that's just erupting constantly you feel it in your chest i mean your your rib cage is where you feel that sound and volcanoes actually produce infrasound which is sound that is below the range of human hearing so that infrasound is something that scientists are now studying because they think it can help us understand how magma is moving around underground in a different way than the information we get from seismometers that are detecting earthquakes caused by the magma moving underground ah interesting because that was one of the first jobs you had on a volcano wasn't it to put seismometers around and use that to start to try and discern what's going on under the surface 
Yeah, installation of seismometers is is pretty common. Now, most volcanoes that are near populated areas, uh, in fact, I don't know one that doesn't have at least a few seismometers. And the way those work is you put them out as an array. So you can use the data from all of your array to understand and help pinpoint where the the earthquake actually occurred underground. So you can triangulate a location of the you know the rupture itself in the rock. So those are that's why you need more than one um, seismometer. With infrasound, you can also put out an array and you do the same thing. You triangulate where the noise is occurring using all of your different sensors. So it's it's cool. We use a lot of stuff that makes a lot of sense. Um, and that's one of the things I like about geology is that our work is often really logical. And you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You would put out an, a net, essentially, to try to catch all of the information that you need. It's you can, you know, also you can walk up and touch the thing you're studying most of the time uh, in geology, which means it's a little bit more accessible for folks like me who enjoy tangible and less so the purely theoretical. Right, because you also yeah, you started off as an art student and then took a sharp turn towards the sciences. Well, liberal arts. It was uh, English. I, right. I love po- I love poetry, you know, and and it's uh, I, I'm obsessed with T. S. Eliot. So it's, that's still a thing. I'm still obsessed with him, and well, not so much him, but his writing. And um, I I love it so much. But yeah, switching into the sciences, I don't think I would have switched for. I mean, I may have switched for veterinary science um, mm-hmm. because that's what I'd wanted to be when I was a younger kid. Um, but I thought I couldn't because I had a bad experience in 10th grade chemistry class. And I thought, I, I can't do this. I had a bitter nun who was one semester from retirement, basically. And <laughs> I mean, yeah, she was she was a nice person. But you'd go up and ask for help and she would she would go with her smoker's voice, look in the book. And you're like... <laughs> Uh, okay. I really don't get this concept, but, um, great. I will look in the book. So I thought I couldn't really do chemistry very well, but turns out I'm actually good at chemistry. I just love geochemistry. So oftentimes if people are afraid or intimidated by science, it's not all science. It's just maybe one aspect of science that didn't come as naturally to them. And they may be surprised. It, like, say if you don't get physics, if it doesn't come super easily, or maybe you struggle with calculus, uh, look into geology. I, I will say try and take an intro geology class, even if it's an online one, um, because seeing the stuff visually it just makes it come alive in, in in a different way. And that's all geology, not just volcanoes. Yeah, it does seem like the opposite end of the spectrum from things like cosmology, where you're never going to directly experience the thing you're studying. It's all going to be abstractions of equations and things still important and interesting, but would attract a different kind of brain <laughs> functioning sort of like the things that turn you on as far as intellectual stimulation. Yes. You know? and, and that's why like I'll watch, you know, the rovers landing on Mars and the launches for the different different rockets. And, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. But I know so often, like, especially with Mars, I'm like they're never going to get to see that. Like they're having to use this robot. Right. And and I'm so used to being able to walk up and, and break my subjects with a rock hammer um, on purpose. Uh, it's like, uh-huh. OK, I have this very physical, very tangible job. And so I have a lot of respect for people who can who can persevere in spite of the fact that they will never go and see a black hole. Uh, you know, they've got to use the right, telescope right. image and, and they can they can love their job every bit as much as I love mine. <laughs> Hey, Andy, we're talking about stuff that's been around for quite some time. And oh, yeah. uh, 
and things that we knew nothing about. And there's a there's another way to find out things that we previously knew nothing about, or maybe knew a little bit about, but want to know a lot more about. Well, you must be talking about the vast collection of information that can be found at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Can't you always guess it? Yeah, this is we, we've talked a lot about that. We've had it as a sponsor for years because we really believe in in what they produce, which are uh, hundreds, uh, nay, thousands of lectures on so many different subjects from learning to play chess to exploring the cosmos, how to train your dog. And, you know, all of us love when we get that aha moment when we learn something new. It's so satisfying and empowering. You know this because you like our podcast. And appropriately this week, because we've been talking a little bit about older technology and ways that older people older people, ancient peoples understood the world. We've been watching Understanding Greek and Roman Technology, which is a course that combines both science and engineering with history. Yeah, it's, it's really a fascinating look to, com- to combine civil engineering with Roman history and learn how Trajan's column was built in Rome, how each marble drum that weighs 60 tons was lifted in place, all with just manpower, with just the power of human muscle. Uh, and, and like all courses, this is taught by an esteemed professor in the field, Dr. Stephen Ressler, who's a professor emeritus at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and a distinguished member of the American Society of Civil Engineers. All of the lecturers in the Great Courses Plus are at that same level. And uh, basically anything you want to study, you can pretty much find it here. And you can listen to it and watch it on every platform, from your computer to listen to it as a podcast, to your t- smart TV. So if you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably... You will get a free trial and $30 off if you sign up for an annual plan. So you've really got nothing to lose. Sign up for that free trial. Check it out. Watch any of the lectures on any of the hundreds of thousands of topics. That is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. It hadn't even occurred to me until just now how much your work becomes useful to uh, astronomers and cosmologists and and people studying other planets. Like there, There must be data and science that you and your colleagues have done that then is used by the likes of NASA to explore the surface of Mars and other planets and correlate with what we know about Earth. That's exactly why geology is so important, is that we we only, we see the world in terms of our, our own frame of reference. And so if we see something that looks like a lava product, like a basalt rock, which is a type of lava that we see. The Hawaiian types are often basalts, not always, but that dark, you know, oozy fluid flow, that is that is typically basalt. And when we see that on the moon, for example, and we see those big dark areas on the moon, we need that earth-based understanding to say, hey, you know what that looks like? That looks like basalt. Oh my gosh, was the moon volcanic at some point in its history? And, and the answer is yes, yes, it was. And yes, that is basalt there on the moon. So we use the Earth as our frame of reference from which to do all of our exploration out into the cosmos. And there's actually a whole field of study called planetary geology. And within that field, you even get planetary volcanology. So there are scientists who study volcanoes in space. And again, I feel bad for them because they're not going to get to walk up to their subject ever. Uh, but it is, it's a necessary field. And it's so important as we begin to explore off of our own world even more. Um, it, go up to them and also sleep inside them, which was something that you did on one of your first expeditions as well, which I didn't <laughs> know you could do. Uh, you slept inside a, a lava tube, which sounds like a horrible idea. 
Yes, and it would be a horrible idea for pretty much everyone. So anyone listening, if you go to Hawaii, do not sleep inside the lava tubes because they are—they were often used as graves for the local population, the indigenous folks in Hawaii, because they don't have, I mean, the islands are volcanic. Like, there's nowhere to bury people. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, it was more convenient uh, to put them inside of a lava tube. Plus, you know, their, their whole culture was was based around worshiping volcano deities and understanding that there were you know things larger than themselves so it it was where they chose to bury their dead and you shouldn't explore in a lava tube either unless it's one that like you know on the big island the national park service has cleared for tourists to go into uh because it's disrespectful uh the word in in hawaiian is kapu and that means forbidden so you don't want to go into any place that is kapu uh so we were sleeping in a lava tube. This came about because uh, I was doing a survey with my boss at the observatory and one other student researcher. And we were trekking down from the summit of Mauna Loa, which is close to 14,000 feet high. Uh, and we were going all the way down the side of this volcano. And Mauna Loa is the world's largest volcano. It is a behemoth. And from its base on the ocean floor to the summit, it's bigger than Mount Everest. It's just you don't see all of its bulk because it's really far under the ocean. So it is a huge, huge, huge mountain. And um, as we were coming down it, it started to rain. Oftentimes it has localized weather, like one side of the volcano will be sunny, the other side will be rainy, It, it happens. And it started to rain, it was cold, it was a long day. And so my, my boss, Frank, he is part native Hawaiian. And so Frank goes, okay, let's go in that lava tube. And I went, Frank, we're not supposed to be in a lava tube. And he goes, it's okay. I'm Hawaiian. It's fine. Get in the lava tube. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, okay. Um, if he said so, I mean, he is my boss. And, you know, if he thinks we're not going to get, you know, murdered by vengeful ghosts of warriors fallen past, um, <laughs> great, we can do that. And uh, so, so I think the only acceptable instance of sleeping in a Hawaiian lava tube at any rate is when you've got clearance from somebody who is, has the right to give you clearance. Let's put it that way. <laughs> right. Right. It's like surfing in certain lineups. You got, it's locals yes. only, or you got to be with a yep. local. Yeah, yep. yeah. So there are some, I've actually been to a lava tube that doesn't, I don't think it has any um, problematic things about going at it in, uh, in the Mount St. Helens area called Ape mm. Cave or Ape Caves. I have, been there? I have been there. Yes. And it is so cool. Lava tubes are amazing. Yeah, I recommend yes. That if one. people can go to a lava tube that is, has been approved for public uh, visitation, do that by all means, because they are, if people don't know what they are, I mean, it really is like what it sounds. Geologists don't really go in for fancy names most of the time. Uh, the words are pretty straightforward. And in this case, a lava tube is a tube that lava travels through. And it's basically, if you, people think of an eruption just as a big explosion, that's not that's not the right way to think about it. These are conduits where lava from the the central area the magma chamber that is underneath the crater or in the caldera depending on the volcano a caldera is bigger and is formed via collapse Um, a crater is like what we picture on most volcanoes they have a little depression that stuff shoots out of Um, i'm making it very simple here Uh, so the lava it can also it can basically solidify as it as the air around it touches it. So the outside of a flow will, will solidify and harden before the inside. So a lava tube is basically just an area where the there's a roof that is solidified, but then underneath that roof, there's still flowing lava. 
And it can be like a river of lava. And some of them are just huge. Like there's even some out in California's Mojave Desert. There's one that tourists can go in, in the Cindercones National Natural Landmark, which is a thing. It's in the Mojave Preserve. Um, there's Ooh. like... That's close yeah. to where I live. I it's amazing. There are 33 cinder cones out there. 30, well, 30 something. I think it's 33, but I'd have to double check. But they are spectacular. They make for great photography. And there are a lot of them you can go pretty close to. And they used to mine the cinder from the cinder cones to use on baseball diamonds. And, uh, and now they don't. Now it's a national preserve. So no one mines there. But you can go in this lava tube and it's probably close to 30 feet high. Uh, and, and it's also probably 25, 30 feet wide. So this is a really big structure and you can go around in there and they have done some weird things in that lava tube in the past. I have seen people coming out, um, looking like they're just putting their clothes on, but then someone else with a camera. So they may have been filming an adult video in the lava tube. I have seen, you know, kids in there telling ghost stories. I've seen evidence of wild parties. All I will say is if you go visit a lava tube, please take your trash out with you and don't spray paint the lava tubes ever because they're beautiful enough. They don't need any enhancements. We're jumping all around the book uh, right now, but one of the things I first encountered you, I first knew of you because of your turn towards politics and you were one of the scientists running for Congress a couple of years ago. And a lot of your work now is also advocacy and outreach. And you run this uh, Blueprint Earth, this organization to try and get people, particularly kids who wouldn't normally see the kind of things that you get to see, like the big parts of nature. I wonder if we could talk about that a little bit in your organization. So I didn't expect to go into natural resources, but I did realize pretty quickly that uh, we can't exist in the modern world without extracting these resources from the ground in a lot of cases. And until we can synthesize these these elements and, and minerals and rocks, like we're going to need to to do mining. Um, so I got an up close and personal look at coal mining and at hard rock mining all over the place. And I took that knowledge to start Blueprint Earth because mining uses uh, a very systematic approach uh, to, to getting the information that you need and to keep people safe when they're actually mining and to see if the, the stuff that you're targeting is actually worth your while. So I used that systematic approach to start Blueprint Earth, which is essentially trying to figure out how the Earth functions as a series of systems. So each environment is its own unique self-contained system. And you've got um, you know, the atmosphere all the way down to microbes in the soil. that all, They all play a role in keeping these environments functional. And so we said, let's do this for each of the Earth's seven major biomes. And we'll start with the desert. And so out in the Mojave Desert is where our Blueprint Earth folks do our work. And we have teams of scientists and students. And the students are college and university aged. And what what we're trying to do is give them the chance to work with each other. Uh, so obviously to educate the students, but also to get them to work with scientists in other fields, like geologists working with atmospheric scientists, working with microbiologists. So it's a pretty neat effort because we also make it available at no cost to our students. So if they can get to LA or Vegas, then we cover all of the costs from there. And these students get hands-on field research training that would normally cost a couple thousands of dollars uh, for them to do 
in a traditional field setting, and it would only be focused on the field that they study. They wouldn't get to work with people in other fields. Uh, we make that no cost. And as a result, uh, with Blueprint Earth, we've seen, gosh, we've been around, this is our eighth year, and we've worked with over 350 students, and they are mostly women, about 76% are women, and then 54% of our participants are students of color, and 60% come from low-income backgrounds. So this is really a diverse group, and it's neat because it shows me that if we make science affordable and accessible, then we're going to get a much broader array of scientists than we would otherwise. And so these these students now have some training that they can go use to get jobs or to go on to graduate school. And uh, and it gives them a different perspective on what it means to be a scientist because they get a chance to go and do field science and uh, hopefully balance out the introduction to lab science that most of them have already had. That's amazing. And that's, uh, I'm just Googling it to making sure this is right. BlueprintEarth.org. Is that where people should go to? Uh, yes. Yes. Find out more And if that. you're a college or university student, you can apply to join us. We haven't posted the new dates yet for, cause we didn't go out during COVID. Um, we wouldn't have wanted oh, to right. mix people that closely. Um, but it's, uh, you know, we, we camp together, we cook food, uh, as a group. So it's a very, you would be close to people if you were working with us. So we were like, yeah, let's just not for right now. Uh, but we're going to be back yeah. doing stuff in the field uh, starting in the fall, if all things go well. And uh, you can go to blueprintearth.org too if you would like to donate or if you have a grant that you think we might be qualified for, please tell us uh, because we survive on individual grants or individual donations and grants. So we need we need funding just like everybody in science. Please fund us. Uh, <laughs> and we are a nonprofit. We're a, we're a volunteer-driven nonprofit. Um, we actually don't have any full-time salaried staff, not even me. I, I don't take a salary for Blueprint Earth. So it is something that all the money goes to towards the students and to making sure that the research is high quality and the students get the chance to do it without having to pay. That's really incredible. <laughs> so, by the way, I'm looking at this picture on this site. Am I, is that Amboy Crater? That no, no, you're chance? close. Oh, that's no. the, that's the cinder cones oh. area in the Mojave preserve. So it's similar. The, the way it looks is super similar to Amboy. Amboy is just, um, gosh, is it like 50 miles? I want to say it's like at least 50 miles from where we are. So right area of the world, slightly different crater. <laughs> that's Yeah, that's that's I'm, I, I've been living out in the desert for the last year or so. So I've been exploring around there. I've done Amboy Crater, but I haven't been to this. Oh, yeah. Go out to the cinder cones. It is there's um, you want to look near Kelso Depot. That is there's sand dunes there and there's, you know, cinder cones all over the place. So it's it's a spectacular part of the world. And most people just drive L.A. to Vegas and they never know it's there. But it is totally amazing and it's a great trip if you want to go out and camp and it's not like you don't camp at a campsite there are a couple out there but you can camp just off the side of the road that's allowed in the preserve it's all blm yeah yep and you can you can be there for up to two weeks in the same place so pro tip yeah that's yep go camping it's great (laughs) (laughs) so where are you where's your next expedition because in the book you you do quite a bit of traveling. I don't want to spoil too many of the stories, but you get into some scrapes in various different parts of the world. Yes, I I have worked all over. And most recently, I was actually all throughout Europe and uh, the Mediterranean. And so I even made it to Turkey, which is 
technically Europe, but also technically not Europe. Uh, yep. <laughs> it's it's kind of a fun, uh, it, it straddles a few different boundaries. Um, but I was doing all that um, for a TV show that I've got coming out. And so there's a couple of options. I could, I could, we could have another TV show uh, series because this is a, this is a first season of a new series about uh, where I get to be the scientist who tries to prove or disprove hypotheses about whether or not Atlantis existed. So, <laughs> oh. yeah, so it's fun. I got to do a lot of um, archaeology, a lot of um, scuba diving and rappelling and crazy stuff that was um, what was done to see if there was evidence that Atlantis may have existed. And it's not, um, I mean, honestly, I don't know after doing all this. I was super skeptical when I started, but now I'm like, mm, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe there is a specific civilization that Plato was talking about, um, but maybe not. It could have just been an amalgamation of a few different advanced civilizations, but uh, it's, it's going to be a fun show. And that's coming out in like May. And so this, if this they... Is... Oh, sorry, please. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say it's Discovery Channel. It'll be out in May. But, you know, if we get picked up for another season of it, then... Then I'll probably be traveling a little bit around the Mediterranean, but then also out into, I think, uh, northern Africa, like in Morocco and Tunisia, those sort of areas. Um, so I think, you know, fingers crossed I get to go there because it's it's fun. It's not just volcanoes, although there are volcanoes. <laughs> Yeah, fingers crossed you find Atlantis, because that would be the coolest thing ever. It would be pretty cool. I don't think we're going to find it in the way that we think, uh, but, you know, I think we're going to find a pretty advanced civilization, I mean, that that is about the right age. Um, my co-host, he came up with a new hypothesis. Uh, his name's Stel Pavlo, and he has been obsessed with Atlantis forever. And by looking at Egyptian king lists... He thinks that Atlantis took place at a different date than what everybody else has been, uh, you know, the time frame everyone else has been looking in. He thinks it's older than where people have been looking. So it, it makes for a really interesting show premise. Um, so I wanted to get renewed because I would like to go to all these other places. And for volcanoes, I was putting together an expedition to go to the newest lava lake on Earth, which is uh, at Mount Michael, which is in the South Sandwich Islands, basically two degrees north of the Antarctic Circle. And I had a team of scientists assembled, the like Avengers of Science, really. And we were going to go down and be there for a month. And I had started the ball rolling on everything we needed. And um, COVID happened, coronavirus occurred, and I just don't, didn't feel right. Like the last year, I have not felt right trying to fundraise for an expedition that while it is important exploration and it's really important to get that data, it's not as critical as making sure people who are out of work get get money and uh, right. <laughs> that sick people can get medical care. So I said, you know, I just can't ask people for money for this because big expeditions, you've got you've to gotta get sponsors. You've got to get donors. So we've paused that. I would love to get it started again, but I want to make sure that we are more in the clear um, in terms of COVID before I really push it, if you know what I mean. <laughs> right. And also COVID has to add a whole lot of extra expenses and complications anyway to any expedition. Oh, my God. Yeah. Even just filming the Atlantis show, that was during COVID. And we had to get special clearances to go to the different countries. We had to have a COVID safety officer with us who screened us multiple times a day and, you know, said we can't go to this place to get food because there are too many people. And it was it added a lot of expense and difficulty to even just making a TV show. So a, an actual full-on scientific expedition, you're going to have a, a whole new level of challenge as well. 
And just to be clear, this is a different TV show to the one you you talk about in the book, or is this the same? Yes, yes, I. It's a different one. So my experience okay. with Discovery has improved significantly. Um, I was in the just book, checking because that first... one seemed like a slightly more complicated affair when it came to control of what, your image and what you were doing. Yes, and that was that's what I've learned because I've been doing TV now for like six years or so, and what I've learned is is how to explain to the TV folks look, we can't do this thing you want to do because either it's dangerous or it's ridiculous or a scientist would never do that or say that or think that. Um, But here's what we can do instead. And this is going to look amazing. And let me tell you why. So, uh, you know, there's there's two different worlds, right? Like when you're coming from a purely entertainment background, you think, how do I show something that looks amazing? You know, I've seen movies, I've seen cartoons, like, that's what your frame of reference is. And if you haven't spent time in these very wild places around active forces of nature, like volcanoes, you may not understand how incredible reality is. And and I tell people, I'm like, hey, truth is better than fiction. And I live that every day. So I am much more equipped now to work with producers and directors about, you know, about different shows to make them better. And that's why I'm, I'm happy to say that the problems that I experienced in my first episode of, of TV-dom uh, with Discovery all those years ago, those problems have changed because the executive leadership at the top has changed and their attitude towards science has changed. And I think we need more and more of that. And just as is evidenced by the show that I just did about Atlantis, um, I'm a co-host with a person of color. Stell is a Greek Cypriot. And so you have a show on Discovery, which has typically been pretty white male dominated, and you're going to have, you know, a, a woman and a person of color like that's your those are your hosts. And seeing that, even though we don't talk about it during the show, it, it's not something we would ever have cause to bring up. But just for people to see that, I think that's going to change a bit of the narrative about who hosts these shows, who an explorer is, who a scientist is. And we need to go further. We need to keep showing local folks who are experts. And that means like if I go to Indonesia for something, I want to show the Indonesian scientists on camera who I'm talking to and learning from because nobody knows everything about the world. And and that constant curiosity and, and desire to know more that is what the heart of science really is. And it's, it's just a waste not to tap as big of the human population as possible if you want a further knowledge of any subject. Yes. I mean, we, yeah. we have huge problems we're dealing with, with coronavirus, with, with um, food insecurity, with climate change, uh, with migration. Like, these are all massive problems, and we need all hands on deck to solve them. We right. can't afford to let people sit, sit out just because they don't look like what somebody's idea of a scientist is. That's, that will not fly anymore. Yeah. So again, watching for the title of the upcoming Atlantis show. Oh, is... it's Hunting Atlantis. On Hunting I think Atlantis. it's going to be on Discovery Plus and regular Discovery. I don't know yet, but it's probably going to be late May, is what they've told us. We've I've finished all my stuff. I've recorded all the little you know after after stuff the the pickups as we call them or the ADR, which right. is automated dialogue replacement. It's like when. You know, when some of the dialogue didn't make it because maybe the the microphone got rubbed or something, so you have to go in and redo the line. We've done all that. So yeah, it's right. basically in the edit room now, and it's just up to Discovery when they actually send it out the door. Excellent. Nice. I can't wait to see that. <laughs>
Um, by the way, I, I don't mean to like get back into the weeds with with volcanoes, but I still do have oh yeah no questions about just just like big picture wise. Now that you've studied them for so long, what is the one thing that you would want the public to understand about them that they don't right now? Like even if it's just a safety thing <laughs> or something. So the I think the biggest thing that I have to talk to, and it's usually around Yellowstone, but it applies to all volcanoes and. I, the thing I hear the most that I have to, you know, the, the myth balloon I have to pop um, is that volcanoes don't become overdue for eruptions. So they're never due in the first place. And Yellowstone, the reason that people think this is because you get these people online who want to drive clicks and they want to scaremonger. Um, and so they'll say Yellowstone is overdue for an eruption. Well, no, it is not. Um, Yellowstone erupted uh, about 640,000 years ago, uh, about, um, you know, more or less. Uh, I guess I could just say that it's it's about every every 640,000 years. So 1.2 million years ago, 1.8 million years ago, it's also had large eruptions. Um, so that makes people say, oh my God, it's overdue. You know, it's about every 640,000 years, the last three times. So we're due. That's not accurate. Volcanoes don't operate on human timescales whatsoever. And they also don't have to erupt. Um, it's just a very unique set of circumstances underground that it has to be sort of the perfect storm for a volcano to erupt. And so that means that Yellowstone, I mean, it could never erupt again. I mean, in terms of a super volcano size eruption or, you know, the most likely thing that will happen within our lifetimes is that it will produce a very small local steam driven eruption. So we're talking just like a bigger geyser kind of thing, not um, not a cataclysmic, you know, end of end of species type of eruption. So. And that goes for all volcanoes. Like when the, when Kilauea stopped erupting in 2018, we didn't know if it would erupt at the summit again the next time or if it would erupt on the flanks. We, we just don't know. So saying a volcano, if anyone ever tells you this volcano is due or overdue, they are trying to sell you something. Or I guess in the case <laughs> of the Internet, they're trying to harvest your data for ad revenue. <laughs> right. Right, right. Yeah. Although you, you're not averse so, to occasionally playing up the danger of a volcano, which there's a couple of times in the book where you get yourself out of trouble by, you know, slightly exaggerating the the job you're doing in terms of keeping the locals safe. Well, yeah, when I ran into some narco traffickers in Mexico, I was studying volcanoes that are extinct, like they're not going to erupt again. Um, but I needed to to convince them to give me back my rock hammer, which they had taken. Uh, it's, it's sort of a, a long story, but it's in the book. And uh, they had taken this rock hammer. I ended up uh, essentially confronting them in a very polite way by saying, like, please, have you seen my hammer? And they have a <laughs> geologist. And then I study volcanoes and I'm really doing important work. And then the, you know, the, the narco I was talking to was like, is it dangerous? You know, and I'm like, well, no, but, you know, I really need to do this work to keep everybody safe is essentially what the <laughs> message was. Like, no, it's not dangerous now yeah. if you don't give me my hammer back. Yeah, um, I mean, like, if I don't... But, yeah. This yeah. hammer is the only thing standing between uh, you and an explosion, so... Yeah, fiery doom. So, I, you know, that, that I was willing to, to fudge the details there. Um, I think that's an allowable asked, one. Yeah, and when he asked if there was gold, I was like, yeah, no. <laughs> I am not about to become the, the drug runner's uh, gold locator. That is not a thing. Um, so I 
I, that was a sort of one one case, but typically I'm very upfront with people because volcanoes don't require any embellishment. Uh, Ninety nine times out of a hundred, and I mean, really, the most dangerous thing that you will encounter. I mean, there's always going to be risk when you're working on an active volcano where where there's an eruption going on. You're going to have a certain level of risk, and you prepare yourself for that. You understand it. You decide if it's worth the risk to get the data that you're going to collect. Um, and you make that calculation every day that you go to work in the shadow of an erupting volcano. But when, um, when you have to deal with the people in some of these remote places, uh, oftentimes the people will be the bigger danger than the volcano itself. And so you need to be flexible and creative and um, into problem solving creatively because that is what will keep you safe out there. And, you know, you can account for so much from nature, but from other humans, we're a little less understandable sometimes. <laughs> what, what we're talking about danger, before we wrap up, can we talk a bit about what you wear when you're going up to a volcano? <laughs> in terms of protective gear because there's, there's one point in the book where you mentioned making lava angels and i want to know how that works yes it is uh, i have a picture of that actually uh because you can't make a lava angel without getting some sort of record of it but it's uh basically i laid down on cooled pahoehoe lava and i was wearing a flight suit in that instance because i was uh in between helicopter flights to we the helicopter dropped us off on the flow field we did some work and then it came back to pick us up a few hours later and so i was in that instance i was wearing a, a helicopter flight helmet and a flight suit a fire resistant flight suit and so i just laid down and made a lava angel it was not as fun as you might think but it was it's a funny photo um but typically when you go to work um, around areas where you think there will be active lava flows, you have to wear um, natural fibers. It's got to be like cotton because the synthetics will melt uh, and you don't want that. And you've got to wear boots, like big rugged boots, but they can't be um, steel-toed because, again, heat. Right. <laughs> it's right, not right. something you want to do. You don't want to cook your own feet. And then you also need to do like... It's generally good to wear something high visibility. So if you are, if you become incapacitated or something that somebody can in a helicopter could pick you out visually. Um, and so your teammates can see you if you're on, you know, far away from them for whatever reason, you're going to stand out against the landscape. And then you wear uh, heat resistant gloves to do actual lava sampling. And you wear a heat resistant face mask, like a, a balaclava style where only your eyes are visible. And it's mm -hmm. good to wear some eye protection, even just sunglasses, because your eyes do start to dehydrate uh, when you get up close to a lava flow. So you need to be very good um, about spatial awareness because you need to be able to get your hammer into the lava when it's not uh, easy to see because your eyes are so dry. <laughs> and then you've got to like pull the lava bleb out of the flow and turn around and put it in a coffee can full of water that's behind you. So that's how you sample lava. And of course, if you go closer to areas where uh, there's active spattering going on, like if you're near a spatter cone or if you're near the, the edge of a lava lake and you've rappelled down uh, the walls of the crater a little bit, that's when you're going to pull on those silver suits that a lot of people have seen on the internet. Um, those big full body suits are, they're heat resistant, fire resistant. Uh, they're made out of Nomex, um, which if anyone's a firefighter, they will be familiar with Nomex. Um, but it's, it's, again, nothing's perfect. Like those suits will help, but they will not prevent you from dying <laughs> if something goes wrong. Right. I mean, like, 
presumably when you're talking about the lava being was it 2000 degrees fahrenheit at its hottest that's a thousand celsius for our metric people yes or thereabouts yeah that's not gonna there's only so much gloves can do <laughs> yes yes exactly and i mean that's the thing it's calculated risk and we generally <clears throat> as nice as it would be to say like oh yeah just for fun i went out to this lava flow we don't do that we we do what we do to collect the data that we need to better our understanding of how volcanoes erupt so that we can keep people safe i mean that's the ultimate goal of volcanology is to understand volcanoes and how to live with them because we are not going to get away from them and half a billion people on planet earth are living in volcanic hazard zones i mean we we like to live near volcanoes they're beautiful they're the uh the crops that they produce are great because there's a lot of nutrients in the soil so there's a lot of reasons to be close to them but it's up to us to think about how we prepare for the worst case scenario so do you think that tours should be happening like the ones that were going to White Island and New Zealand where that eruption took place? Like, is that a thing where you're like, obviously we shouldn't have been doing that? Or is that just such an unlikely event? You can't know when that would happen. So, oh, Well, they did have indication that there was elevated risk because the volcano's activity had ticked upwards. Um, and it, it is tough to say because tourism around volcanoes is very popular. I mean, it makes a lot of money for, right. for local folks and, People want to see this stuff. I get it. I, I love it. I'm absolutely enraptured by it. So it's it's tough to say because I think I think the best thing you can do if you are providing a tour to people is to really talk to them about the level of risk and say, you know, maybe give them a risk scale and say, like, here's the risk. Um, do you understand? And really make sure that they fully understand or to the best of their ability they understand that they could die or they could be severely injured. And we're not just saying this to terrify you. Like, this is this is real. And if we can, I mean, people are used to amusement parks and things where the risk is always contained and managed. And it's it's not, you're never really in danger. I mean, when, if for an accident to happen at Disneyland, something is so, so, so wrong. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we have to tell people it's not an amusement park. No one can make this volcano safe. This is something that, you know, this will kill tourists. This will kill volcanologists and reporters. It's, it is nature at its most powerful and raw. And I think if we can do that and really hammer that in before people book a reservation, that's the, the best due diligence that we can do. Because I don't think that completely restricting these areas is the right answer either. I, I just think it's... Mm unfortunately sometimes it just boils down to being in the wrong place at the wrong time but if you if you ignore official guidance and you go and do something anyway that's on you (laughs) right yeah well i I think we should probably wrap things up but that's a good place to leave things but so basically i think the takeaway is go to see a volcano but you know read up on it first maybe don't uh Yes, get the most recent information yep. from whatever agency is in charge of monitoring that volcano in whatever country you're in. Don't touch the red bits. <laughs> yes, never do that. 
Well, by the way, before we let you go, there is one question that I'm sure every listener also needs to have answered. Uh, are you team Dante's Peak or team Volcano? Oh, Dante's Peak, by far. Dante's no, Peak, No course, question about it. Dante's Peak had, it still had some big, huge, glaring scientific holes, but um, it was much better than Volcano, which yeah. is completely yeah. science fantasy. Just FYI, the, the La Brea Tar Pits will never erupt. That is not something that can happen. <laughs> They spent so much time just trying to put those concrete barriers down around Miracle Mile. I'm like, just get out of get out of the city. Yes. <laughs> what are you like, doing? Like, don't even. Just leave. Get everybody out. You have time. The lava goes slowly. I mean, the fastest that the fastest lava flow can travel downhill is about 30 miles an hour. Most of the time, you can outwalk a lava flow. And you should outwalk oh. the lava flow. You should leave. <laughs> yeah. You should go if there is a lava flow coming into your city. That is just good practice. I, and just to be clear, you walk in a straight line. This isn't one where you zigzag to confuse it. <laughs> yes, you have to just go go in a straight line, please. You will not distract the lava. <laughs> So once again, the book is called Misadventure, My Wild Explorations in Science, Lava, and Life. Uh, Jess, how can our listeners find you and find everything you're doing? Well, I'm on all the various social media channels. Um, and if you want pure volcano stuff, Facebook is where I mostly post what I'm doing. Um, it's it's I think I'm just Jess Phoenix on there on my public page. And then on Twitter, I talk politics and science. Uh, Jess Phoenix 2018 on Twitter. Instagram is volcano.jess. Occasionally you get pictures of my pets, but you also get volcanoes and science and cool expedition photos. Uh, and then volcanojess.com is the website volcanojess.com yeah i don't knowing our listenership i don't think pictures of pets interspersed with the science is going to be an issue i think we're all good on that <laughs> front yeah, you, you can find us as always uh probably at probably science individually at andy t wooden at mccursion thank you listeners and thank you so much for joining us jess thank you yeah. it was a pleasure to talk to both of you it was it was a good time thank you well thanks same same looking forward to checking out the show <laughs> thanks 